Hi, you're listening to the GCSE podcast with Jazz and it's me, Jazz, and today we're going to be looking at Macbeth, um, Act 1, Scene 1 to Act 1, Scene 3. Now this is the beginning of my Macbeth series and I will be taking you through the analysis that I have on the Macbeth script and you know it's a great way for you to see and compare what you have and add some things on that you may have not noticed at first and get some different ideas so I will be working my way through the entire script and all the analysis but today as I said it's act one scene one to act one scene three Okay, so how this is going to work is first I'm going to read the scene that we are on um, just so you can follow along with me and we actually get a sense of what the scene is about. You should have a script in front of you so you can annotate along with me and also I would recommend it if you have a script that has um, translations into modern text. If you don't have that, that's fine. Just go to Spark Notes on Google and it, they should, mm, I forgot to say should then, they should have um, the translations because that's where I've got mine from. My teacher just printed out a script for me with the original text on one side and the modern text on the other side. So that's a really useful thing to have because as I will read it out, you can read the modern text and figure out what the scene is actually talking about because Shakespeare is tricky and you don't understand some words. So I'm going to start reading Act 1, Scene 1. Thunder and lightning enter three witches. First witch. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning or in rain? Second witch. When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won? Third witch. That will be earth, the set of sun. First witch. Where the place? Second witch. Upon the heath. Third witch. There to meet with Macbeth. First witch. I come, Grey Malkin. Second witch. Paddock calls. Third witch. Anon. All. Fair is foul and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. So that is Act 1, Scene 1 out loud. We're going to start annotating it now, so get a pen ready, a few different coloured highlighters, and let's get started. So, Act 1, Scene 1 starts with the stage direction, thunder and lightning enter three witches. Now, Shakespeare uses pathetic fallacy here to create a clear sense of unsettled atmosphere to come. Pathetic fallacy, if you've forgotten, is when you use the weather to describe the situation or the mood, like thunder and lightning, it um, creates a sense of ominous, um, of an ominous tone, and it sets a dark and ominous tone for the rest of the play. Then you have your stereotypical supernatural behaviour, which confirms to the audience that these are supernatural creatures. Now, when it, when the three witches enter, the belief of witchcraft was widespread in the Jacobian period with frequent witch trials took place. So the audience would be um, able to understand their evil roles and the fear their presence creates. So straight away we know that 
the Jacobian audience would be able to uh, understand that these are witches and they're evil. Uh, they have the stereotypical supernatural behaviour um, of witches. Uh, this pathetic, pathetic fallacy used to create a clear sense of unsettled atmosphere and it sets a dark and ominous tone for the rest of the play. Next, we hear that it says, When the hurly burly is done. This is said by the second witch, and this shows that they have the ability to control destiny and foreshadows the rest of the play. Now, when the hurly burly is done just means in English, well, in modern day English, it means we will meet when the noise of the battle is over. So it shows that they can control destiny and it foreshadows the rest of the play. And it shows that the witches know the battle will be over, which solidifies the power that these three characters hold. Then you have um, the witches speak in trochaic, trochaic, sorry, not trochaic, trochaic tetrameter, which sounds like a spell, and it separates these characters even more from the rest of the cast to show that they are supernatural and other. So an example of this is when you hear the first witch and the second witch talk, the first witch says, When shall three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? Again and rain is a trochaic tetrameter pair. And then the second witch says, When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. Done, won, another trochaic tetrameter so again this shows that it sounds like a spell and it separates these characters even more now this spell how it sounds like a spell is particularly significant later on when Lady Macbeth starts speaking in trochaic tetrameter uh, which shows she's connected to the witches so next the third which says that will be ere the set of sun which could represent the end of Duncan's reign and the beginning of Macbeth's journey, as that will be a the set of sun means that will happen before sunset, and sunset represents the end of things because the sun is setting uh, into darkness. So, it, like, again, like I said, it could represent the end of Duncan's reign and the beginning of Macbeth's new journey. Um, it could also show that with the coming of darkness, um, the setting of the sun, also comes the metaphorical darkness of the first set of prophecies and the destruction they cause. You should be familiar by now um, the plot of Macbeth. So we know the first prophecies, they do come true. Um, and it shows the metaphorical darkness um, that these prophecies cause. Then the witches reference their familiars, Grey Malkin, Paddock and Annan. Now, by referencing these familiars, it's making it clear uh, to the Jacobian audience the powerful roles these witches play. As familiars in those times were thought to be the devil, uh, to be thought to be that the devil um, would bestow evil spirits in the form of animals to witches. So the grey malkin, the paddock, and the annan would be those familiars, which would be very. Um, understandable to the Jacobian audiences who were who thought they knew pretty much everything about witches so this is just to appeal to the audience then they all say fair is foul and foul is fair now this is um kind of representing everything that evil is um, and that's exactly what they enjoy they wish to reverse the natural order of the world fair is foul and foul is fair um they are reversing the natural order much like how when Macbeth kills King Duncan, he is reversing the natural order 
the divine right and um, he's doing something he's not meant to be doing just what the witches love doing they like reversing the natural order of the world then you have fog and filthy air hover through the fog and filthy air which means let's fly away through the fog and filthy air now this is um a metaphoric symbol for which is changing Macbeth's ability to view anything rationally slash clearly so if the fog if the air is foggy and filthy um it's representative of how Macbeth later on his judgment is clouded and he he's really confused and he has this internal conflict within him and filthy air shows that um there's a suggestive um, it's suggestive of pollution and the lack of purity and that the witches bring with them darkness and dark deeds okay so let's move on to act one scene two now you can pause this podcast whenever you want so if i'm going too fast pause it make sure you've written anything that you need to write down so act one scene two i'm going to read it first like i did last time and then we will go through it now this act uh is quite long act two act one scene two so i'm going to read it in sections and we'll go through it in sections so act one scene two alarum within enter king duncan malcolm dolobane Lennox, with attendants meeting a bleeding captain. Duncan, what bloody man is that? He can report as seemeth by his plight of the revolt of the new estate. Malcolm, this is the sergeant who, like a good and hardy soldier, fought against my captivity. Hail, brave friend, say to the king the knowledge of the broil, as thou didst leave it. Captain, doubtful it stood as two spent swimmers that do cling together and choke their art, the merciless MacDonald, worthy to be a rebel, for to that the multiplying villainies of nature do swarm upon him. From the western isles of Kerns and Gallogasses is supplied, and fortune on his damned quarrel smiling showed like a rebel's whore, but all's too weak for brave Macbeth, while he deserves that name, disdaining fortune with his brandished steel which smoked with bloody execution like valour's minion carved out his passage till he faced the slave which near shook hands nor bade farewell to him till he unseamed him from the nave to the chops and fixed his head upon our battlements duncan o valiant cousin worthy gentleman So that is the first little section that we're going to go through. Now this section tells us a lot about Duncan's character and also uh, about Macbeth and his um, fighting style basically. So let's start from the beginning of Act 1, Scene 2. Duncan starts by asking who this bloody man is, which is referring to the captain, and, and he's saying maybe he can tell us the latest news about the war. So... Because, he says, as seemeth by his plight of the revolt of the new estate, it shows that Duncan is far removed from the battle and its, and his territory um, by the fact that Duncan has to interrogate a captain to find out what the battle, what happened in the battle. It shows he has no clue what's happening to the men defending his country. So it shows the audience, and the audience questions how tactical Duncan is, and he... Uh, I mean, he relies completely to the strength of the soldiers uh, to win the war because he doesn't know what happened. 
He's asking, he's saying, I bet he can tell us the latest news about the revolt. Asim Mathias' plight of the revolt, the newest state. So he is far removed from the battle. He has to interrogate a captain to find out about the battle. That shows he has no clue what's happening in the war. And the audience questions how tactical he is and how well of a leader he is because he has to rely completely on his soldiers. Then Malcolm says, say to the king the knowledge of the broil, which means tell the king, the king, tell the king what was happening in the battle when you left it. So this shows he's an ineffective king as he keeps his distance, making us question his ability to be a strong leader. And um, it shows the battles other people are fighting for him is the evidence of his weakening grip on law, order and loyalty. So right away we find out that Duncan is probably not a tactical ruler and probably not the strongest leader when it comes to war as he has to rely heavily on his soldiers. Then later on in Act 1, Scene 2, it says, as the captain describes Macdonald and Macbeth in war, and fortune on his damned quarrel smiling. Now this says, what this means, smiling cruelly at his enemies as if she were the whore. So, it shows that the battle favoured Macdonald, but Macbeth was still victorious, presenting Macbeth as someone who will not let anyone stand in his way, presents him as valiant, presents him as, um, what's that word when you are like, uh, steady, he's someone who's steady and he knows what he's doing, so when it says, of Cairns and Gallagas is supplied and fortune on his damned cross smiling. So he smiles at fortune because he, he knows that the battle favoured Macdonald, but he was still victorious. Then it says, for brave Macbeth. Now, the concept of honour uh, was very important in the 11th century. So Macbeth resembles a perfect hero and soldier as seen in his bravery in battle and his skill. It shows Macbeth is a very good soldier. He's, uh, wherever he is, he's being called valiant, worthy, um, brave. So obviously people have a very high expectations from him and they um, view him as a very loyal and um, ideal soldier. Then when the captain is describing his um, fighting style and the way that Macbeth um, killed Macdonald, he says, which smoked with bloody execution like Valor's minion carved out his passage till he faced the slave. Now I'm just going to read out what that means. So it says that he chopped his way through Macdonald, who didn't even have time to say goodbye or shake hands before Macbeth um, killed him, basically. So, when mm -hmm. it says smoked with bloody execution, that shows um, that the speed of Macbeth's sword and the defiance of their fate, um, and he has a relentless speed, basically shows, um, or is a metaphor of the speed of Macbeth's sword. Then it says, like, Valor's minion carved out his passage. Now, carved out his passage, so this shows that Shakespeare makes it clear that Macbeth is desensitised to violence. So, 
This shows later on in his private battle that goes through in his head to go through with murder, murder or not. It's not to do with violence or gore, but an internal conflict to wrestle with the morality of his actions. I'm just going to say that again because that might sound confusing. Now, this whole speech that Captain is making is all about how brutal Macbeth was when he killed MacDonald. And he carved out his passage. He his brandished steel which is sword carved out a bloody execution he unseamed him from the nave to the chops which basically means Macbeth split him open from his navel to his jawbone basically cut him in half so Shakespeare makes it clear that Macbeth has no problem with the violence he's desensitized to it he's a soldier that's what he does he kills people so it shows that later on when he's conflicted about whether he should kill the king or not it's not about the violence it's not about the actual killing he's not scared of blood it's his morality of his actions of being a moral um soldier a loyal soldier or being or battling his ambition then it says till he faced the slave so as a warrior he should face his opponent fairly which does come on uh, later on in the play as later on in the play Macbeth kills Duncan in his sleep, which is not something that is fair. Um, and that doesn't mean you face your opponent fairly. And one of the, in the Jacobian times, the the things that um, soldiers were told to do is face their opponent fairly, and they should be judged fairly. Um, but these morals, slowly, as the play develops, of being a loyal, good soldier, slowly deteriorate then it says he unseamed him from the nave to the chops which we discussed how um it just means that he opened or split him open uh mcdonald from his navel to his jawbone um and this flaunts his innate savagery and brutality warning others not to cross him or they will meet a similar faith now that's the first little chunk of act one scene two and that basically shows um Duncan as a inefficient ruler as he has to find most of his um war war um updates from soldiers because he does not he's far removed from the battle and the way that Macbeth is a perfect soldier he um faces his opponents fairly he's not desensitized to violence he flaunts his savagery uh to tell other people not to cross him he is someone who will not let anyone stand in the way and he basically resembles the ideal soldier and this is very important when it comes to later on the play because you can compare how Macbeth is viewed in the beginning of the play to let's say in the middle of the play or the end of the play now I'm going to read the next section of act one scene two so captain as once the sun gins his reflection, shipwrecking storms and direful thunders break, so from that spring once comfort seemed to come, discomfort swells. Mark, King of Scotland, mark, no sooner justice had, with valour armed, compelled these skipping kerns to trust their heels, but the Norwegian lord, serving vantage with furbished arms and new supplies of men, began a fresh assault. Dismayed not this our captains, Macbeth and Banquo. Yes, as sparrows, eagles, or 
the hare the lion if i say sued i must report they were as cannons overcharged with double cracks so they doubly redoubled strokes upon the foe except they meant to bathe in reeking wounds or memorize another golgotha i cannot tell but i am faint my gashes cry for help duncan so well thy words become thee as thy wounds they smack of honour both go get him sergeants exit captain with attendants enter ross and angus who comes here malcolm the worthy thane of ross lennox what a haste looks through his eyes so should he look that seems to speak things strange now let's go back to this little portion the captain says shipwrecking storms and direful thunders break which is um a clear metaphor for the anarchy of the battle and shakespeare continues to connect the witches with shipwrecks throughout the play uh, which shows the havoc the witches create now you will see this shipwreck um references later on in the play uh, for example they talk about a sailor's wife and how she will make a shipwreck out of his uh, ship uh, and make his ship disappear um, later on in the play. So they do associate with shipwrecks quite a lot in the play. So just keep that in mind as we read through the play. Um, so it's so Shakespeare connects the witches to shipwrecks to represent the havoc that they create and um, as it says shipwrecking storms here it creates a clear metaphor for the anarchy of the battle then the captain says yes as sparrows eagles or the hare the lion when duncan asks him did um this frighten macbeth and banquo Uh, and the captain says yes as sparrows eagles or the hare of the lion so this compares macbeth to the norway king and basically he's saying the new challenge scared them about as much as sparrows are scared of eagles um, and rabbits frighten a lion so it's comparing macbeth to the norwegian king then it says or oh, memorize another golgotha now this is significant as this is a vivid image of the rotting and decay that suggests their aim was to make that battlefield infamous now shakespeare references to golgotha which is a religious place in the bible which saw the sacrifice of jesus which may foreshadow macbeth's actions in act two by committing duncan's murder macbeth would have essentially committed the same acts as those who murdered christ so golgotha is a religious reference to the place where the sacrifice of jesus happened which foreshadows um the murder of duncan by macbeth and macbeth would essentially be committing the same crime as um the people who murdered christ so this is a vivid image of rotting and decay which suggests that the aim of the battle of the battle was to make that battlefield infamous now that is all for that little portion so the three little quotes that we should have annotated are shipwrecking storms and die for thunders break clear metaphor for the anarchy of the battle uh convinces uh, con- shakespeare continues to connect the witches of shipwrecks throughout the play to reflect the havoc they created 
um, or memorise another Golgotha, which is a reference to the illusion of Christ's crucifixion and foreshadowing that accept Macbeth will do later on in the play. Now I'm going to read the next portion of Act 1, Scene 2. Now this is a wrong portion I'm going to read because there's not actually that many... Um, analysis for this one so I'm not going to read all of it I'm only going to read the bits where there's annotations so basically in the still portion Ross and Duncan have a conversation about the war they carry on talking about um, the battle and Ross says about the Thane of Cordor being a traitor as he helped the Norwegians and um, Duncan is happy to hear about Macbeth being successful in stopping the invasion. Now the Thane of Cawdor has basically betrayed Duncan by helping the Norwegian king so they are talking about his betrayal and Duncan says the Thane of Cordor will never again betray me. But obviously it, it, he says no more that no more that Thane of Cordor shall deceive. So you should remember that quote because it shows irony um, and it foreshadows because as we know Macbeth will become Thane of Cordor and he essentially deceives him and Duncan is saying that the Thane of Cordor shall not deceive him anymore but that's exactly what he does then there is an exit and that is it for act one scene two so in act one scene two we learn about duncan as a character as a king how he's far removed from the battle how he is probably not the most efficient ruler we learn about Macbeth being a perfect ideal soldier who's not afraid to let an, anyone get in his path and he's clearly desensitised to violence. We learn about how the witches are often linked to shipwrecks in other play to uh, represent the havoc they create. We learnt uh, when it says Ormond Morrison of the Golgotha that's a religious reference to the crucifixion of Christ and it foreshadows the actions that Macbeth will have which are basically uh, the same as committing regicide to the king is the same as the people who committed the same acts who saw Christ murdered. Then also we learnt that um, there's foreshadowing and irony, dramatic irony as Duncan says, no more that Thane of Cordor shall deceive. But that's exactly what the Thane of Cordor, Macbeth, does. He deceives him. And that is all that happens in Act 2, Scene. Act 1, Scene 2. Now we're going to move on to Act 1, Scene 3. And I'm just going to go straight into it. First witch. Where hast thou been, sister? Second witch. Killing swine. Third witch. Sister, where thou? First witch. A sailor's wife had chestnuts in her lap, and munched and munched and munched. Give me, quoth I, I want thee, which, the rump-fed runyon cries. Her husband to Alipo gone, master Otho tiger, but in a sieve I'll thither sail, and like a rat without a tail, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do. 
second witch. I'll give thee a wind, first witch, thou'rt kind, third witch, and I another, first witch. I myself have all the other, and the very ports they blow, and the quarters that they know. I the shipman's card, I'll drain him dry as hay. Sleep shall neither night nor day. Hang upon his penthouse lid, he shall live a man forbid. Weary seven nights, nine times nine, shall he dwindle, peak and pine. Now in this little section, first thing, uh, when the first witch asks, Where hast thou been, sister? Second, the second which replies killing swine now in those times it was believed that if you found a pig that was dead it was the work of a witch so so shakespeare is clearly reaffirming the audience's beliefs um surrounding witchcraft and also these terrible actions that are described here demonstrates the evil deeds the witches are capable of like they're killing swine and they are cursing um sailors wives i mean sailors because their wife wouldn't get give them chestnuts. I mean, she is basically draining the life out of him. I'll drain him dry as hay means I'll drain the life out of him. So it just reinforces that they are evil and they are not good people. Then it also says, um, sleep shall neither night nor day. Now, Macbeth later on says Macbeth shall sleep no more. Um, Macbeth has murdered sleep, something along those lines, you can look it up later, it mirrors and it reflects what um, the first witch has just said, which shows that this not being able to sleep is unnatural and is an effect of witchcraft, witchcraft on you. Then, let's read the next Act 1, Scene 3 portion. Second witch, show me, show me, first witch. Here I have a pilot's thumb, wrecked as homeward he did come. Drum within, third witch, a drum, a drum, Macbeth doth come, all dancing together in a circle. The weird sisters hand in hand, posters of the sea and land, thus do go about, about, thrice to thine and thrice to mine, and thrice again to make up nine. Peace, the charms wound up. Enter Macbeth and Banquo. Macbeth, so foul a fair, so foul and fair a day I have not seen. Banquo, how far is it, how far is't called to fours? What are these so withered and so wild in their attire? They look not like the inhabit, inhabitants o' the earth, and yet are on't. Live you, or are you aught the man may question, or seem to understand me? By each at once, her choppy finger laying upon her skinny lips. You should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are. So in this section, we're going to just focus on one quote from there, and that is Macbeth when he says, So foul and fair a day I have not seen. Now Shakespeare often uses weather to signify approaching disturbances in social order. This is an example. Then also, this echoes the... Witch's own words. The first line we ever hear from Macbeth, witches, um, I mean, echoes what the witches said. Um, foul is fair. Um, sorry, fair is foul and foul is fair. So foul a fair and day I have not seen it. Echoes the witch's own words, emphasizing that there's already a close link between the two, and they haven't even met each other yet. So this emphasizes also the witch's ability to prophesize as they are able to influence his own words. 
He is already confused and unable to see clarity in the environment, as it says so far on fair a day I have not seen, and this shows the witches have impacted him before he has even met them. Okay, next portion of Act 1, Scene 1. Speak if you can, what are you? First witch. All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Glams. Second witch. All hail, Macbeth. Hail to thee, Thane of Cawdor. Third witch. All hail, Macbeth. That shalt be king hereafter. Banquo. Good sir, why do you... And seem to fear things that do sound so fair to the witches. I, the name of truth, are ye fantastical, or that indeed which outwardly ye show? My noble partner, ye greet with present grace and great prediction of noble having and a royal hope that he seems wrapped withal. To me you speak not, if you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which shall not. Speak then to me, who neither beg nor fear your favours nor you hate. First witch, hail. Second witch, hail. Third witch, hail. First witch, lesser than Macbeth and greater. Second witch, not so happy yet much happier. Third witch, thou shalt get kings, though thou be none. So all hail Macbeth and Banquo. Now this section is so important, I cannot stress it, because this is the section where we learn the prophecies, and there's a lot of annotations we can say here. So first we could say is the way that these predictions are clear and decisive. Therefore, Macbeth has an immediate understanding what the witches are telling him, but there is no detail and they are vague enough that Macbeth begins to second-guess these self-fulfilling prophecies. So they are detailed enough that Macbeth understands what they are saying, but vague enough that Macbeth has to second-guess himself if these are actually true. They also say, all hail Macbeth, Thou shall be king hereafter. Now, in the 16th century, it was believed that the, but that the devil was internal thoughts. So, if a people, if somebody had bad thoughts and if they acted on it, they were dealing with the devil. In this case, he indulges in the fantasy of being king and later acts on the thoughts. So, he has been tempted by the devil, but we see later on that Banquo is not. Also, when it says, all hail Macbeth, thou shalt be king hereafter, the witches don't actually tell him to murder Duncan, but their lack of time scale and uh, Macbeth's temptation means that they're guiding him to his future actions and therefore his destruction and downfall. Now, let me explain that one a bit more clearly. So, they say, all hail Macbeth, thou shalt be king hereafter. They don't tell him to actually murder Macbeth, they just tell him that you will be king. But their lack of time phrasing and saying, when he will be king like this could mean that he could be king 10 years from now or it could be mean he could be king a week from now they don't actually give him a time phrase so couple that with his t temptation ambition it means they're basically guiding him to his future actions and therefore his downfall now banquo from the beginning is doubtful and he says if you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not speak then to me so unlike unlike macbeth banquo is suspicious and questions the witches and their intentions he has a rational logic that macbeth doesn't possess because it says my dear macbeth why do you look so startled and afraid of these nice things they're saying that's the modern text what he banquo actually says in the text is Good sir, why do you start and seem to fear things that do sound so fair? 
So that shows that Banquo is suspicious and questions the witches, but Macbeth doesn't have this rational logic that Banquo possesses. And when it says, uh, if you can if you can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow and which will not, Shakespeare is again referencing the Bible. Um, in the Bible it says, thou knowest not which seed shall prosper, uh, which would put Banquo in the Jacobian times in a saintly light as a, a bib, biblical kind of uh, figure. He's not biblical, but he um, is shown kind of religiously. Then the witch's prophecies for Banquo says, lesser than Macbeth and greater. So this hints at the fact that whilst Banquo wouldn't rise as far up the hierarchy as Macbeth, and he will never be king, um, his reputation will never sink as low as Macbeth's when um, he does become king, because we find out later on, nobody likes Macbeth when he's king. The second witch says, not so happy, but yet much happier. This shows that he will not be happy, but will not face the same psychological torment as Macbeth does. Now, Banquo doesn't give in to the temptations of playing um, with the witches and their prophecies and he does die with a moral purity that Macbeth couldn't achieve he died with shame then it says the third prophecy says thou shall get kings though thou be none so all hail Macbeth and Banquo now this is interesting that the witches don't reveal Banquo's prophecies until after he asks them to do so in showing an interest in what the witches foretell, it could be argued that Banquo also has a darker side to his character. Certainly he seems to be as brave a soldier and as ruthless a fighter as Macbeth when we hear the two men described in the captain's speech, but he is able to contain his potential ambition and desires, unlike Macbeth, and is able to avoid entertaining the devil. Then... The witches vanish, and Banquo says this. The earth hath bubbles as the water has, and these are of them. Whither are they vanished? Now, Banquo was thought in Jacobian society to be a direct ancestor of King James I. Um, and if you think about it, Banquo's descendants shall be king. So it was th thought that King James I was his descendant. And by presenting him as the character who takes a high moral ground and doesn't um, play with the witch's prophecies and ignores the will of the witches, it appeals to the Jacobian audience. And Banquo says, whither are they vanished? Which means, where do they disappear to? So Banquo, once again, is focused on finding rational explanations in what he has seen and heard. Then Macbeth says, into the air and what seems corporal, melted as breath into the wind, would they have stayed? Now, by showing Macbeth as a character whose downfall comes from listening to the witch's prophecies, Shakespeare is suggesting that there is honour in the noble bloodline that that comes from Banquo. Despite Banquo's bloody end, he makes the right decisions, um, and this could be evidence of Shakespeare deliberately appealing to James's first obsession with witches. And if you know, James I had written many books about witches and he was obsessed with um, the idea of witches and um, capturing, capturing them and making sure they don't harm anybody. Uh, Macbeth also says, your children shall be kings. So 
this is the driving force behind many of Macbeth's later decisions and his obsession to keep the legacy in his bloodline. So we can already see he's focused on that prophecy from the beginning. Now we're going to skip a bit of Act 1, Scene 3 because there's a lot of bits that we don't really need to worry about. But this is a bit where Ross and Banquo come, uh, Ross and Angus come to Banquo and Macbeth to tell him that he is now the new Thane of Cordor. Now Banquo says, after Macbeth is announced Thane of Cordor, he says, what, can the devil speak true? So Banquo is acknowledging that yes, the witches just said he will be Thane of Cordor and here come Ross and Angus and they are saying that he is Thane of Cordor. Now this shows that his anxieties about Macbeth come true and his prophecies are probably going to come true because Macbeth's prophecies are already starting to happen and Banquo is slightly more guarded and therefore maybe that's why he later on teaches Fleance swordmanship. Fleance is his son by the way and if you recall later on um, he is shown as being quite on edge let's just say because he is he knows about the prophecies he knows everything so that is act one scene three now we're going to skip more as well it's basically about banquo and macbeth talking about the witch's prophecies and then it says after they've had their discussion about the witch's prophecies macbeth goes to the side and talks aside for the first time in this play. And we understand. Now this is the first true glimpse of his inner feelings. And we know at this point he's already become quite obsessed with the prophecies of the witches. But it's in this moment we hear his true thoughts. And it's clear he's already torn by the nature of the witches' news. So he says. Aside. This supernatural soliciting cannot be ill. Cannot be good. So like I said this is the first glimpse of his true inner feelings. We know he's already become quite obsessed with the prophecies and in this moment we hear his true thoughts and it's clear he's already torn by the nature of the witch's news. When it says cannot be good, cannot be ill, it shows he cannot hope to know precisely what these prophecies will come uh, but he is desperately craving that they will come true. Now the second prediction happens so fast that he's Thanes of Thane of Cordor that Macbeth, Macbeth naturally turns his thoughts to being the king. Now, he got given three predictions, if you can remember, that he will be Thane, that he is Thane of Glams, which he already was, that he will be Thane of Cordor, which right after the witches leave, he is already given that title right after, and that he will be king. Now, naturally, your brain would think, I've been given, I'm already Thane of Glams, I've just been given Thane of Cordor, so I must be king soon. So it's completely natural for him to turn his thoughts to being king. And maybe it is the way that he was told that he was Thane of Cordor so quickly that led to his downfall because he thought that he would be king sooner than what was um, planned. So he had to take matters into his own hands and essentially ends up committing regicide.
Now this is the last bit of Act 3 and then we'll be going to coming to the end of this podcast. So, Act 1, Scene 3, it says, My thought, whose murder yet is but fantastical. So this is what Macbeth says. And basically it means, even though it's just a fantasy so far, the mere thought of committing murder shakes me up so much that I hardly know who I am anymore. So this shows that Macbeth is planning murder, as the witches didn't mention killing him, but at this point he's not comfortable with the idea. And he knows that to even think these thoughts is deeply dangerous. And we can see a deep um, and clear duality to his character. But he appears to still have a sense of hope, sees that he has a good fortune coming, yet he has to commit a crime to achieve it. Now, Macbeth aside again says, If chance will have me king, why chance may crown me without my stir? So again, um... That means if fate wants me to be king, perhaps fate will just make it happen and I won't have to do anything. So it shows that he is not planning at that moment to do anything and it relieves the audience that he's not going to commit a crime. And he um, he has faith in the future, but we soon see this attitude slowly change throughout the play. Now Banco says, new honours come upon him, like our strange garments cleave not to our mould, but with the aid of use. Now... What this means is Macbeth is not used to his new titles. They're like new clothes. They don't fit until you break them in over time. Now, Banquo compares Macbeth, um, Macbeth's new titles to ill-fitting clothes. So he holds none of the noble qualities a king should have. Banquo is already acknowledging this. And Macbeth also uses this imagery earlier on in the play when Macbeth said... Why do you dress me in borrowed robes when he was told he was uh, Thane of Cawdor? So it shows that both Macbeth and Banquo recognise that Macbeth has been uh, elevated above his station, a status that is not suited suited to him uh, with his early thoughts of regicide. Then Macbeth says to Banquo later on, let us speak our free hearts to each other, which means uh, let's talk and we can talk to each other like friends would and in reality Macbeth never really shares his true feelings with his supposed friend later on they don't even talk at all and he actually ends up killing Banquo so Macbeth only shares his true feelings with his wife and the audience so at this early point a wedge has already been created between them two which will not conclude well for either of them so that is act one scene one two and three all annotated and you should have a pretty good annotated first three scenes of Macbeth. Um, thank you for listening. And yeah, we have done the first scenes. Now I'm just going to go do a quick summary of everything. So Act 1, Scene 1, we are first introduced to the witches. Act 2, Scene 2, uh, we are told about Duncan's inefficient ruling, how Macbeth is a perfect soldier. We learn about... Um, the three prophecies um, that Macbeth has and the three prophecies that Banquo has. We also learn about how he has um, been given the title of Thane of Cawdor straight away. And also we have figured out that he, he and Banquo do not think that his new titles are suited to him.
Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this episode where we talked about Macbeth Act 1, Scene 1, Scene 2 and Scene 3. I hope it helped you in any shape, way or form. And thank you for listening to GCSE Revision with Jazz uh, by me, Jazz. And uh, do whatever you have to do. Leave a like, uh, follow, I don't really mind. Um, and I will be coming up with more Macbeth episodes later on where we will be talking about Act 1, Scene 4 to Act 1, Scene 7 next episode. So stay tuned for that and have a good day, have a good time, wherever you are in the world. Bye.